If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Somewhat familiar story with some maybe unfamiliar ideas. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in the Anon and Selen because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testify about who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly and speaks of earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He, who, he testifies to what is, has, he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and, his, and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Scott. And good morning. Good to be with you as always. Uh, John the Baptist was a really big deal. Bigger probably than you realize. I think the common understanding of John, I think this has been my understanding for a long time, the the common understanding of John was that, yes, he was really important and, and he had a really important role, but he wasn't really appreciated in his day all that much. He was kind of viewed as this uh, really zealous, passionate, eccentric, and by eccentric we mean like maybe 10% crazy, like this really eccentric guy who was out in the desert eating bugs and yelling at people all the time, right? And, and so people were, were coming, and yeah, there were people who came to listen to him, but, but almost more as like a spectacle. Like he was this kind of curiosity on the edge of Jewish society that people knew about and were kind of intrigued by but didn't really know what to do with. When you read the Gospels and the way they describe John the Baptist, now they don't talk about him a lot, but when they do, they paint a completely different picture of the status that he had in that time and in that part of the world. Mark chapter 1 tells us that the whole uh, Judean countryside and all Jerusalem came out to hear John speak. And when we look at different parts, we see that actually um, 
people from like the entire kind of range and spectrum. We see in John 1 that religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees are coming to hear what he has to say. And we see in Luke 3 that tax collectors on the far other end of the religious spectrum, they're coming out to hear what John has to say. And of course, all the kind of common Jewish listeners are coming out to hear what he has to say. And even soldiers who are probably not Jewish at all, they're all coming to hear John and they are hanging on his every word. They adore John. And if you don't think so, look at the way Jesus uses John the Baptist to back his opponents into a corner in Mark 11. He's there debating with them in the temple courts, and then he just asks them this one simple question. John the Baptist, was his baptism, i.e., was his ministry, was that from God or was that just man-made? And the second those words leave his mouth, they know they're stuck. Because if they say he was from God, then Jesus is going to turn on them and say, then why didn't you listen to him? Because they didn't. They refused to hear John and, hear, and to listen to him. But if they say what they really believe, that he was just man-made, that this is all just kind of his own doing, they know in that moment that the people are going to turn on them. Because everybody loves John. And it says there, everyone there considered John to be a prophet sent from God. So the religious leaders, they want no part of publicly disagreeing with him. The political leaders even have some fear of John and his influence. That's why when John speaks out against Herod and his adulterous marriage, stealing his own brother's wife, when John speaks out against him, that's no small thing. That's big news in that part of the world, and that's why Herod has him imprisoned and then eventually executed. All the Gospels touch on this story just a little bit, but even historians from that time tell us about that. Josephus, a Jewish historian who was by no means a Christian, he writes about this whole ordeal about 60 years after John had died, and here's what Josephus has to say about John. Now, many people came in crowds to him. For they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that the great influence John had over the masses, might put them into his power and enable him to raise rebellion for, and listen to this, they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. John was a really big deal. And of course, perhaps the, the biggest thing that we could say about John is what Jesus himself said about John in Matthew chapter 11, that up until the point of Christ's kingdom and the new covenant people that Jesus was creating, all the way up until that point, if you count up everyone that came in history before Jesus, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest person ever born. Those are pretty big words. Greater than Moses greater than Abraham, greater than King David, greater than Aristotle, greater than Alexander the Great, greater than all of those people. And yet, we talk about all of those people a lot more than we talk about John. He is easily overlooked. Even in church, I mean, it's, it's possible to go a year or more sitting through church services and not to hear the name of John the Baptist even brought up. Why is that? You know why I think it is? Because John was really good at his job. John was really good at two things. Point people to Jesus and then get out of the way. And if John were here today and he knew that we didn't talk about him very much, I think he'd be thrilled by that. 
In fact, I know we would because that's what we just heard in the story that we had read to us. I want to walk back through that story again in John 3, but before we do, just a little bit of context to set up. We're coming off the heels of this encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very highly respected, great teacher in Israel from the, uh, from the party of the Pharisees, and he comes and visits Jesus at night trying to get his mind around who Jesus is. And there's this contrast that John is setting up kind of through his gospel. Justin talked about it last week. This contrast between light and darkness, between belief and unbelief, between the ability to see who Jesus is and those who cannot. And we see Nicodemus, he appears to, at least in John chapter 3, he appears to be stuck still in the middle of the darkness category. He does not quite get who he's talking to, does not quite um, grasp all that's going on with Jesus. And then we turn the page into this next story, and we come to John the Baptist, who does see Jesus, who does articulate who he is. And John seems to be one who sits in the light. Now, this story is sparked by this debate that took place between some of John's disciples and this, it just says, certain Jewish person. John, the writer, it gets a little confusing. John, the apostle, wrote the gospel, and then there's John the Baptist, who he's talking about. I'll try to clarify as we're going through who we're talking about. But John, the writer, doesn't give us a lot of details about who this person who starts this debate is and what the debate is about. He just says it has to do with like ritual purification, ceremonial purity. It, it might have been, we think, maybe this, this man was saying to John's disciples, hey, is, is the baptism, is the ceremonial ritual washing that Jesus and his disciples are doing, is that one more important than you guys's? Because uh, everybody's leaving you, everybody's leaving John the Baptist and they're going to him. We don't know exactly what was said, but whatever it is, it sparks this concern and this frustration in John's disciples, and so they go to him with this report. We'll pick up in verse 26. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And so they say to him, John, listen. You need to know this. You're, you're losing your following. You're losing the influence that you've held for so long. We need to do something about this. We need to fix this, John. And how does John respond when he hears those words? Verse 27, John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. So John responds with these two key truths about his ministry and about his influence. The first is this. He says that his ministry, the influence that came with it, it wasn't from him. It wasn't his doing. God, John recognizes, had seen fit to give him this role of preparing the way for the Messiah. And God had seen fit to give John this voice with the people. And in that day and in that time, but God now has also begun to give that influence over to Jesus because Jesus has a different and unique role. And John goes, I don't got anything to do with this. I can only receive what's been given to me. And John recognizes that his ministry is not from him. He also recognizes this, even more importantly, that it's not about him. 
The influence that's been given to him is not for him. He knows that no matter how important he is, no matter how big a crowd he has been able to draw, he is not the point. You yourselves can testify, he says, that I told you I am not the Messiah. I'm not the point. And then he goes on to illustrate this with this wedding imagery. Look at what he says in verse 29. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So you're sitting there in the church sanctuary. You're, you're sitting on the pews and you look up at the platform it, watching this beautiful, amazing wedding ceremony unfold. And this young couple is standing up there and the bride is there and she's beautiful in her white dress, in her white gown. And then the groom is there and he's handsome and he's proud and he's excited. And you're watching this whole ordeal unfold and there's something that's really amazing about it, as most weddings are, but there's something about it that doesn't feel quite right to you. And you can't quite put your finger on what it is. And then you sit there and you're looking at the couple and suddenly it dawns on you that the bride, the whole time the minister is talking and even as she's stating her vows, she's not actually looking at the groom. She's looking just past him, just over his shoulder into the eyes of the best man. And the moment you know what that is, your stomach, it just feels sick. Because there's something so wrong about that picture. That's what John is getting at here. He says, listen, Jesus is the groom. He's the whole reason this whole thing is happening. I'm just the groom's friend. The, the term that he's probably referring to, we think he's, he's talking about this role that was called the shoshbin in, in Jewish weddings. And, and the shoshbin, it was, it was a lot like uh, a best man today, except for it was much more official and much more extensive. He had a lot of responsibilities in the wedding. He was like the primary witness to the wedding. He also oftentimes contributed financially to the ceremony, and he was kind of over and in charge of the general uh, arrangement and oversight of the ceremony itself to make sure it all kind of went off without a hitch. There's a lot of things that the shoshbin, that the groom's friend was supposed to do in a wedding, but one thing that he was never supposed to do is take attention off of the groom. He helps the wedding take place. He makes it all go through, but he knows that the wedding is not about him. And for hundreds of years, the prophets had been foretelling of this day when God would come to his people and he would betroth himself to them and they would be his in this new covenant relationship. And now that day has finally arrived with Jesus and John will not let himself be stuck in the middle of that will not get in the way of those things, will not make himself the center of that wedding. And so he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Those words, I must decrease. I think there are probably few words in history that run more counter to our culture's heartbeat than that. I must decrease. To be fair, actually, I think that those words would probably sound strange in any culture at any point in history because this is a very natural human drive in us. It is a universal drive for us to want to increase. 
to increase in status, to increase in influence, to increase in fame, to increase in power. That runs in all of us. But I think that those words feel so out of place in our world today because the truth is increasing has never been easier than it is today. It has never been more possible for everyday people like you and I to increase our voice, to increase our influence, to increase our own personal brand, a phrase, by the way, that would just sound ridiculous to any other generation at any other time. We have our own personal brand, and we have the ability to get that out in front of people. We have this ability now to let ourselves be seen, to let our voice be heard, and the general rule is that you should. It's never even questioned whether or not you should increase yourself, whether or not you should be more known. Of course, it's always good to be seen. It's always good to be heard more. The more exposure you can have towards yourself, the better. So here's the question. Is that true? Is it right to aim towards influence, towards power, towards increasing? Actually, maybe let me ask it another way. Is it wrong? Is that wrong to seek to do important things? Is it wrong to have fame or influence or power? Are those things sinful? I don't think so. John himself, remember, had all of those things. He was famous. He was influential. He had power over the people's minds and all those things, and he doesn't seem to be repenting of those things as though they were bad. That's just what he had. No, the problem with fame and influence and power and notoriety is not that they're sinful in and of themselves, but they have this tendency to inflame in us something that is a very real sin. They have this ability to exasperate this this temptation, the fundamental temptation for all of us going all the way back to the garden when the serpent said to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And the fundamental temptation is this, to make ourselves the point, to place myself at the center of the story rather than God, to place myself and my wants, and my desires, and my own name at the center of my own story, or hopefully at the center of everybody else's story. And what sin does is it takes this God-given desire for greatness, this God-given desire to do great and important things, and it twists it in us so that now my desire is not just to do great things, but to make much of myself, to grab a piece of the glory that belongs to God alone. At least I know that's what it does in me. Can I tell you that this is uh, easily one of the most pervasive sins and temptations in my own life? That the uh, unspoken motto of my life oftentimes is uh, not so much Jesus must decrease and I must increase. I would never say that. No, it's, it's more like he must increase and I really need to increase too. And I got to do whatever I can to increase. And, and, and I know I don't want to increase as much as him, right? Jesus is still the point, but I kind of want to be point 1A. I am uh, a people pleaser to the core. It is strong in me and is by nature something that I crave 
the approval of others. Uh, I crave your approval. I want, if I'm honest, I want so bad for you to like me. I want so bad for you to be impressed by me. And it's something that I, if I'm being honest, I wrestle with every time I get up to speak this thing inside of me that really does want to lift up Jesus and really does want to to make him known. And I want you to adore him and I want you to see him and I want you to think about him and talk about him. But if I'm honest, when you get home, I kind of want you to talk about me too. I don't want you to talk about it. What a great job I did. And man, what, didn't, didn't Drew kill it today? And he's so awesome. Isn't that gross? Isn't that just sick? I wrestle with that every time I get up to speak. And, and honestly, not just when I get up to speak. In just like every other area of my life, I, I want people to see what a great guy I am or what an effective minister I am. I want, I want you to be impressed by me. Oh, thank God that Jesus would die for glory thieves like me. You know what that's like? Can you identify with that a little bit, that that desire to be seen, to be well thought of, that that people-pleasing tendency in yourself? And hear me, listen, all of us, I think, have some degree of a desire to please people. I think that's natural. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have any desire to, to please people. If that's you, congratulations, but you might be a sociopath, okay? <laughs> like that's, that's just kind of like what it is. Like we've all got that in us, and I think there's something okay with that, but, but maybe like me, you recognize that that desire has turned into an idol because you have found that your happiness and your very identity is wrapped up in that. That when people see you and think well of you and think highly of you, you, you rise to new levels. But when people don't, when you're worried they're not giving you the recognition you deserve, when, when you think they may be frustrated with you or disappointed with you or they might not think very highly of you, you find yourself kind of crumbling a little bit inside and trying to figure out how you can get back on top. What do we do? What do we do about that? What's the call from this text? What is it calling us to do? What is it calling us to be like? Is the goal here for all of us to always say like John, I must decrease? Like is the goal that I should never do anything that might cause me to to look important? Is the goal that I should never try to do any great things? That I should uh, never use my gifts or talents to serve unless I am 100% pure in motive? Unless I'm 100% certain that I'm doing this completely for God and completely for others and not for myself? I don't think so. I I think... I think that we should always be aware of this tendency inside of us to try to make ourselves the point. I think we should always be aware of the pride that crouches at our doorstep, but to to try to spend every minute of my day or every decision I make to think to myself, am I really, do I have 100% pure motives in that? I think that's just paralyzing. The truth is we all probably have a mixed bag that it's always a little bit of both, and hopefully by the grace of God, not only is he forgiving me of that, but he's also working in me so that it can become more and more about him and less and less about 
myself, but I, I don't think that the goal is that we have to always aim to decrease or to not try to have any sort of success. Or success. John himself was not always decreasing, again. John was on the rise for a very long time, and decreasing was not John's primary goal. Do you want to know what John's primary goal was? Faithfulness in the role that God had called him to. That was his goal. The question for John was never, how can I increase in the eyes of people? Or on the flip side, he was never asking, how can I decrease in the eyes of people? He was never asking, how can I be noticed or not noticed? No, he was always asking this question, how can I point people to Jesus? How can I be faithful in that? And sometimes when John was doing those things, the crowds loved him. And sometimes when John was doing those things, the religious leaders hated him. And sometimes when John did those things, Herod beheaded him. But the response that he got from others was irrelevant to him. That's not where his joy was. His joy was wrapped up in something else entirely. Did you notice that word, by the way? I never noticed that word in this text until I was preparing for it this week. The word that John uses to describe this whole situation for himself is joy. Verse 29, to read it again, he says um, that the, the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's, groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, the call of this text is not for you and I to have a ministry like John's. It's not to increase like John. It's not to decrease like John. The call is to have a mindset like John, to have his joy, to have his joy that is wrapped up in something bigger than ourselves and, and what we're about and what's happening to us. That's the lesson, that we ought to be like John in his mindset and in his joy. But that's not the only thing that this text is trying to teach us. No, 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 we can't stop there for two reasons at least. First is, I'm pretty sure if I make this text all about John the Baptist, he's probably going to throat punch me when I get to heaven, and I don't want that. The second reason is because John the writer doesn't stop there. No, John the writer continues on after this narrative because he is making a bigger point. What he really wants you to see is not just John's joy, but the object of his joy. And that's what he begins to unpack for us in the following verses. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. But the one who comes from heaven is above all. You see, I mentioned to you earlier that there's this contrast in the book of John between light and darkness. And, and Nicodemus falls on one side and John the Baptist falls on the other. But there's another contrast that John is making all throughout this gospel that he holds up a lot. And that is the contrast between the one who is from above and those who are from the earth. Between the creator and the created. Between God and everything else. And what John the writer wants to make very clear here is that as important as John the Baptist is, as big a deal as he is, he still fits in the everything else category. Along with Nicodemus, along with King David, along with Aristotle, along with Alexander the Great, he still fits in the everything else category. But this other character in the story, the groom, 
He does not. Because that box marked everything else in all creation. That, bar, that box that's labeled everything that has ever existed throughout the entire universe for all history, that box is too small to contain all that Jesus Christ is. And that's what John wants us to get. He'll go on to describe these key truths about Jesus. I want to point out a few of them to you as we go on. The first thing John tells us is that Jesus has a unique origin that gives him the final word on God. Look what he says in verse 32. He, that is Jesus, testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. You see, John and every other prophet that has ever come before him, they are only able to speak the things about God that have been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus speaks about God, he speaks with firsthand knowledge. He speaks because he's been there from all eternity. So he's, he speaks from a different perspective. Not only does he speak about God as the final word, but he also speaks as God. Look what he says in the very next verse, verse 34. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words. That is, when you hear the voice of Jesus, you are hearing the very voice of God. And he continues on that Jesus is the only one who has received the Holy Spirit without limit. Look, since he gives the Spirit without measure, uh, Greek scholars will tell you that the he there actually is pointing to God the Father who is giving to Jesus the Spirit without measure. And that word, that little phrase, without measure, is found nowhere else in all of Greek literature. Not just in the Bible, nowhere else in all of Greek literature, the word that is trying to describe how much access, how much the Holy Spirit is a part of what Jesus is doing in his life. But he continues on after there to describe that one of Jesus' defining characteristics is the Father's infinite love for him and the fact that God has given all things into his hands. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus will say at the end of his ministry, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And finally, John tells us this, that a person's eternal fate all comes down to what they do with Jesus. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And you cannot say any of those things about John the Baptist or anyone else in all the world. You can only say those things about one person. And the reason that Jesus must increase while John decreases is not because Jesus is a more gifted teacher. And it's not because he has more spiritual insight than John. And it's not because he's more a holy or righteous man than John is. It's because Jesus Christ is God. It's because, as John has already told us in the first chapter of his book, he is the word who was with God and was God from the very beginning. Or as the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the uh, radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Or as Colossians 1 tells us, that Jesus is the one through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. Jesus is completely unique, and this is why Jesus must increase. And when we see those things about Jesus, then it's not surprising that he must increase. Of course, he's going to increase. It's inevitable that he will increase. 
What is surprising is the way in which he does it. John the Baptist uses this word increase. That's what Jesus must do. He must increase. Jesus uses a a different word, I think meaning the same thing. In John chapter 12, he says, I, the Son of Man, must be glorified. That's the word Jesus uses. He uses that and he uses lifted up. We saw that last week. The Son of Man must be lifted up. I will be lifted up. I will be glorified. And that theme of Jesus being glorified and lifted up makes its way all the way through John. But as the narrative unfolds, what you begin to see is this really interesting truth that part of what it means for Jesus to be glorified is that he must die. That he must be lifted up means he will be lifted up on a cross And so the very means by which Jesus will be glorified is through being rejected by the very ones he came to save. The way Jesus will be glorified is is by being spat upon and mocked by the religious leaders. The way he's going to be glorified is by, by being stripped and beaten by the Roman soldiers. The way he's going to be glorified is be, by being paraded through the streets like a common criminal and then hung up on a cross to die the most shameful death a person could buy, die in that time and in that place. In other words, the way Jesus increases is by first decreasing to the lowest point. That's the way Paul describes it, by the way, in Philippians 2, when he says that Jesus was in very nature God, but in spite of this, he did not consider equality with God something to be clung to or exploited, but instead he emptied himself and took on the nature of a slave being found in the appearance as a man and and being found in human form, he then became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says, therefore, because of that, because of his willingness to go to the lowest point, because of his willingness to take on himself the sin and the shame that was ours, that we deserve for trying to steal glory from him, for trying to make other people's approval our idol rather than him, because of that, therefore, God has lifted him up and given him the name that is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, everything that the Father has been doing throughout history and all the obedience that Jesus is working towards and all that the scriptures are pointing towards and the entire arc of human history is bent towards this one thing and that is the increase of Jesus Christ. And if all of those things are about the increase of Jesus Christ then I ought to be about that as well. Then you and I ought to make that the goal of our lives and you and I ought to bend our whole lives towards knowing him and loving him in such a way that we can say with John that it is our joy to see him increase, even if that means that we we are brought down to the lowest point. Because he deserves that because of who he is, but not just because of who he is. He deserves that because of what he's done. One of the reasons that I think it should be easy for us to want to see Jesus increase as we know this. At least part of why Jesus was brought low in the first place, part of the reason that he was brought down to the lowest point was for you and I. Because of the sin of us always trying to bring ourselves up, he decided to bring himself down. 
And he did that to take, as I said, the sin and shame that belonged to us, to take that onto himself, to redeem that. So he became low so that you and I could be lifted up out of the sin that bogged us down, out of the shame that has been heaped upon us, and out of the very death that is our curse. And one day, he did that so that one day we will be lifted up to share in the very gladness and the glory and the joy that he has shared with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity. So that's why we remember when we come together as a church what Jesus has done for us. This is the body of Christ given for us. Let's take together church. This is Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together.